Hi, welcome to the Trash Talk Podcast. This is your host, Recycle Michael, here today with Laura McCann. Uh, Laura and I have worked together in the past at, at some events. She used to work with the San Francisco Conservation Corps for nearly eight years before going off on her own and starting Envirolutions Consulting in 2014, where she's the principal consultant. Absolutely. It's great to be here, Michael. And I, I want to just say that you and I go way back. We've been uh, slinging trash uh, since way back in the day um, at some larger events in San Francisco. So uh, congratulations on Recycle Michael. It's good to be here. Great. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, one of our last guests was Green Mary, and she and you and I all worked together at that Harmony Festival one year. Oh, yeah, for sure. So why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to lately? Uh, so I, when I was at the Conservation Corps, um, I got a lot of work doing the green, green events that you were kind of talking about. Um, and I wanted to kind of parlay that experience of working uh, with a business that was putting on event to working with more uh, businesses in their day-to-day operations. Um, and so I started my own company uh, in September of 2014, uh, doing what they call technical assistance, providing guidance for, for businesses and multifamily sites that are looking to either implement organics programs, because that's uh, growing to be more and more mandatory throughout the state. A lot of uh, local jurisdictions have passed mandatory ordinances in advance of what the state state implementation timeframe is. But all throughout the state, it's going to be required by 2022. So jurisdictions are grappling with how to, um, how to manage that. And typically, I'll work with a governmental site that will give me the list of sites to work with to help them get into compliance with the mandatory ordinances. And same thing on the business side. So helping them comply with the mandatory ordinances around recycling and organics participation, as well as just improving systems, right? It's one thing to have the bins. It's another thing entirely for the right things to wind up in them. And so even businesses with existing programs uh, need help. Um, And so that's been a large part of the work that I've been doing for the last six years. Great. Yeah, it looks like we have some overlap there, too. We've been doing uh, some of that stuff, but... I know that um, this new large refuse generator ordinance in San Francisco has spawned a a lot more interest in our uh, services. Absolutely. It's a very interesting ordinance. I'll just kind of um, explain it a little bit for your listeners. Uh, The large refuse generator ordinance requires that I think it's somewhere around 450 of the largest uh, waste generators in San Francisco. So think you know, the very biggest to the tall sky rise buildings and, and, um, and bigger businesses that are generating, I think it's 40 cubic yards of waste per week or greater, have to be able to pass a waste audit once every three years. So uh, that basically means that Recology, the service provider in San Francisco, would uh, go in and look at their waste streams. And if they found a significant amount of partic- or contamination in either the the recycling organic spins, and, and this is important, too much good stuff in the trash, meaning that even if they did a great job on what they put in recycling and organic spins, but there's still too much recycling and organics being thrown away in the trash, they would fail that waste, and uh, they would be required to work with a company to help sort through their uh, discards to make sure that the contamination was not an ongoing issue. And so for my purposes, majority of the time I'm working a little bit upstream with uh, stakeholders and maintenance teams and employees to try to get things as decontaminated as possible. But, you know, if you kind of thought this through, 
you would imagine that any large refuse generator, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for the system to break. So I really don't feel like uh, they would be able to pass an audit in, in nearly every case without still having somebody sort through it at the end of two. It's just that if you do the outreach and education, things are a lot more, um, a lot cleaner before they get get down to that loading dock level. Um, and so, so far, my firm has mostly been doing uh, the out, outreach and education piece, and um, but we're looking to perhaps branch into that sorting piece as well. Oh, well, um, yeah, we've been kind of doing the opposite where we've been focusing on uh, just our presence in the loading docks and making sure everything is uh, coming in clean, whether we're sorting it or we're acting as trashy crossing guards and sending people back to take their waste back if it's not sorted properly, which tends to get people to improve their behavior quite a bit. You know, it's one thing to um, scold them or put up a sign. It's a whole nother thing to send them packing back with their trash. Mm-hmm. I bet. Um, yeah. It's a, it's amazing what kind of impact even just some signage can make. We take detailed data now and see like the contamination rate when we show up before decontaminating it and then add a sign and, and like some graphics. And then uh, we see that improve um, upon our arrival. So the outreach and education part, part is very, very important. Yeah, it takes a village, as we all know. And, and really, I think anybody can imagine, you know, if you look at your own household and you have roommates or you have family members and, and you, you find yourself kind of correcting things from time to time, even though they know that the work that you do, you know, it's, you can imagine how on any kind of scale at all, there's just so many opportunities for misunderstandings. Um, the rules are difficult sometimes. They change city to city or county to county. So um, it, it really takes a, a village to even stay on top of, uh, you know, what the new regulations are and ordinance are that would affect any given business or multifamily sites. So um, it's all about the wraparound approach for sure. Yeah, and, and we've also noticed uh, quite a bit of change in the waste stream due to COVID. Um, not only did we have some sites shut down entirely and are just coming back on a limited basis, but you know we've seen a lot more you know, to-go wear and things like that compared to the um, prior time. Right, yeah, it's, it's an interesting and, and troubling development. You know, the CDC had some re- recommendations for restaurants uh, that are looking to reopen to shift even their dine-in service, or not dine-in, you know, sitting outdoors, but uh, for the sit-down service to shift that to disposables. Um, the language was very confusing in that it also it suggested that unless you didn't want to, right? So the restaurant could make that choice. Uh, and if they had dishwashing facilities, which they would have had if they had dining in service before, then they didn't need to make that move to disposable. And there's this sense that something wrapped in a plastic bag or something, you know, every time you get takeout now, it's stapled at the top. Like those staples really made everything inside all that much pristine, right? So it's really coming from a place of, of uh, fear of the unknown here and, and not from necessarily a place of, of true understanding of what the science is. I think I've not seen anything definitive around uh, the ability of the virus to live on surfaces into any significant period of time. I mean, there's some initial article by the New England Journal of 
medicine indicating that uh, it could live up to three hours on some surfaces and maybe up to 72 hours on other surfaces. But when you go back and look at that study a little bit more closely, you realize that uh, that was a viral load that would be hard to replicate in an actual environment. You know, it was enough of the virus to, to spread, whereas unless somebody was like literally licking their hand and rubbing it on the table and somebody came in right after them, did the same thing right. and put their hands in their mouth, it's just not, it's not all that feasible. And yet we're moving to a place of disposable hand wipes and wiping down everything with, um, you know, uh, disinfecting creams and, and wipes. And it's generating a ton of extra waste from a place of fear. And I think the challenge for us in this industry is going to be walking back some of that. You know, I work with uh, a large tech company who shall remain nameless, who's really making a huge stride to move all of their in-service dining to reusables um, and promote that even even though they had, uh, you know, disposable, compostable coffee cups in their cafes, they would actually make people request them instead of, you know, the default would be a real cup. Um, and since this has happened, as they look to phase in um, going back to the office, they've shifted entirely to disposables now. And it's really, it's a hard sell with uh, a business that has a sustainability team. You know, they have six full-time people on the payroll just working on sustainability across their corporate portfolio, which is, um, you know, international. So uh, this is going to be a big educational campaign from our industry to get folks back into the place where we were before of recognizing that, um, that reusables are safe. They're, um, they're as safe, uh, as disposables, i.e. if there was some risk there, there's no more risk by using reusables than there would be by using disposables and that we need to find a way back to the environmental ethic uh, that we had before, you know, we saw the, the same thing with reusable shopping bags. And, um, I, I'm a part of the Northern California Recycling Association, which did a lot of activism trying to get the public health officers in the Bay Area to um, amend their restriction on the use of uh, reusable bags in grocery stores. The state of California did not give that same guidance. The state of California said that you could use reusable bags. It was the seven Bay Area counties that went further than the state to say, no, at this point you can't. And then they walked it back a little bit to say, well, you can, but you can't put it down on any surfaces. And then we said, what does a surface mean? Does that mean the shopping cart that was disaffected on the way into the grocery store and is going to be disaffected immediately after I use it in the grocery store? If I have my reusable bag in that shopping cart, not on any surfaces that the worker may touch later, is that then safe? And they weren't even willing to say that. Luckily, uh, we were aided at the statewide level uh, when at the end of June, the 60-day um, pause on, on the implementation of the plastic bag ban was allowed to expire. So now we have the plastic bag ban in place again. And you can't say that you're going to charge people for, for using plastic bags or that you can't use single-use disposable plastic bags and also say you can't use reusable bags. You've created an untenable situation. So that right. kind of forced the hand of the public health officers to, to amend it to say, okay, now you can use reusable bags. But it was only because the state put that pressure on by letting that executive order expire. So it's just been a, a very interesting time, and um, and it's a time we're all learning from. Obviously, there's some good environmental benefits to improved air quality from all the less driving uh, and 
and and that's to be celebrated in some level. But the other side of it is that we're moving towards a disposability and um, and moving away from some of our environmental ethics. And I think it's going to take us a long time to get back to where we were before. There hasn't been a single case uh, confirmed of a surface contact transmission where someone actually got COVID by touching something. And it's yes. a harder thing to track, but it's pretty much community spread thanks to respiratory droplets and breathing on people or near people. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we've had to update our worker safety plans to include, you know, mask wearing and turning people away when they're not wearing masks. But we're not very concerned about handling trash. Uh, we always use gloves anyway. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, the thing I think. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say towards the end of sorting, uh, sorting waste, you know, there's still that fear on that level too. We, I know of one uh, MRF materials recycling facility that actually went so far as to store their recyclables for three days just in case there was that three days later there would be no evidence that the virus could persist on any surface. I think they've stopped doing that now. Luckily, we're seeing the reopening of a lot of MRFs throughout uh, the the county um, and buyback centers. Buyback centers in particular, you know, there was only two during the beginning months of shelter in place uh, that were open to serve all of Alameda County. Around the same number for San Francisco, you know, only one in all of San Mateo County serving over 700,000 people. So this is becoming a tax, you know, if you pay into the CRV program, but you don't have the ability to get that five or 10 cents back, that's now shifted from a deposit system to a tax system. And that is problematic for sure. And it's all, I would say some of it's based on the fear of the virus living on surfaces. A lot of it's just not wanting to do the work. I think it was a convenient time for these buyback centers that were already living on thin margins to just say, we're not, we're just not going to open. We're going to lay off our employees and we're not going to open again. Right. Part of it is, uh, it seems non-essential for a lot of people, but there are those people that depend on that revenue and they're getting hurt by that, uh, move. There was already a lack of buyback centers thanks to, you know, certain companies closing their doors partially due to a, a fall in, uh, scrap prices, partially due to some, shady behavior on their part. But um, there is some good news there, at least at the CRV system, that a uh, ring of importers from Arizona that were bringing non-California cans into California with semi-trucks that they would drive through, you know, securitist routes through the desert to avoid checkpoints. And they were cashing in non-deposit cans and sucking our deposit system dry when it's already in, in such dire straits. So at least that uh, that was rectified. Yeah, I heard stories about the uh, San Diego uh, border and, and um, you know Southern California, especially recycling centers that bordered the state of Arizona, and hearing about more than a hundred percent recycling rate in the of the CRV containers in those right. areas, right? So that definitely indicated plenty of fraud down there. But honestly, you know, their estimates, I heard recently Cal Recycle report that they think that we're around 67% recycling rate currently. That's down from a high in 2013 of 83% for beverage containers. Uh, beverage containers only here is what I'm talking about. So right. We're not even getting the bottles and cans out anymore. A lot of a lot more material is going into the landfill, and that has a lot with our ability to get that redemption money back. I mean, that really is, it drives up high quality recyclables. 
it's on the other end of that, and what folks don't realize is that when you look at the recycled feedstock that goes into your new beverage container, say your aluminum can, um, a lot of that comes from those buyback centers. Why? Because it's in the condition that you need it to be in. It's whole, you know, whole cans. It's, it's high quality versus things that go through a single stream system. You know, your glass is completely squashed up with your paper, um, rendering kind of both not that use, usable anymore. Um, you, you might get a bale of aluminum that is some aluminum, also plastic and other materials in there. So the, the buyback redemption centers are quintessential to the recycling system. And, you know, early days when uh, shelter in place happened and all the recycling centers being closed because recycling was not considered essential in the state of uh, California until early June, um, you know, women recyclers uh, basically had to go back out to market uh, because they had been on the feedstock from the CRV redemption centers. About 20% of that was actually coming from those centers. Overnight, that feedstock's gone. So what do they do? They've got to go back to back to virgin aluminum for our cans. That's the real catastrophic thing about this, is it's not just a matter of, yes, it's unfortunate that people can't get their five or 10 cents back. And yes, it's unfortunate that the most vulnerable populations, those people that depended on that money, mental or sole source of their income to make it meet, were officially forgotten about overnight. But also that this material has a life after that, that buyback center. And so if those manufacturers of containers now feel like they, the recycling system is so broken they can't trust it anymore for consistent feedstock, they're going to go back to their virgin feedstock buddies and rekindle that relationship. And all of our around having minimum content, minimum recycled content in our bottles and cans is going to you know, so it's just a lot of unintended consequences to um, the way this whole shelter-in-place um, thing rolled out as far as it pertains to recycling. Yeah, I hear you. And, and combined with that, the lack of driving drove down the price of oil to, I mean, it was negative at one point. So I don't see how it's possible for uh, recycled scrap to compete with virgin plastic that's basically free without those mandatory um, requirements, but we still need the feedstock and we need people to be recycling. And uh, I totally agree with you that the source separated and single stream types of uh, recycling programs like buyback centers and how we used to have the curbside where people would sort into different bins gives you the cleanest material that's the highest value. Uh, I was one of those you know, single stream naysayers like 15 years ago saying that this isn't a good move, you know, mixing all this stuff together is going to lower its value and we have to, you know, sort it all back again, out again, and it's going to be dirty. And why would we do this? You know, so those companies that are those communities that stuck at least with a dual stream system tend to see a higher value and more stable markets for their materials than those that went full uh, single stream and decided just to take everything and you know, that included a bunch of contamination and trash in there too. Yeah. I mean, the math was you're going to get more quantity at lower quality, right? And that, and that increase in participation was worth the gamble. And we really kind of bought it 
into that idea, hook, line, and sinker throughout the state of California. To, to answer the question that folks might be thinking, and I get all the time, is recycling worth it anymore? I still feel like it is. I still feel like curbside recycling is, is worth it. And in, in the state of California, well, I should just speak more for what I know, which is the Bay Area. I've not heard of any um, landfilling of recycling or any discontinuation of recycling programs. I've heard some adjustment of accepted materials, um, and I'd also know that, you know, the Bay Area haulers and really haulers throughout the country have to be suffering at this point. I mean, the, the bedrock on which they build their business model is the commercial sector. They are more heavily, their, their bills are higher. And so when they close their doors uh, to, to operation and they cut their trash bills, you know, they cut off their trash service for months on end, there's just no way that a, that a hauler can survive that without, you know, looking for some support. And I know there's been letters written to Sacramento to request that kind of uh, support on the level of trillions of dollars. Um, but so far, everything is still working and we're still able to market materials. Um, we, you know, re recyclers, uh, processors aren't getting as much money as they used to. Uh, but they are still able to move the material. And at some levels, just kind of like what you, you were talking about with the oil prices, at some point I heard they were even selling it. And you might say, well, how does that make any sense? Uh, you know, they, they couldn't, nobody would buy it. They were actually paying people to take it off their hands. And the reason why that makes sense is that has to go. It cannot be stockpiled. They would obviously stockpile as much as they can, but at some point the stuff has to go. And that's the same for us in the waste industry is you can only stockpile for so long, but the materials has to go for a lot of different reasons. And so at some point you just got to pedal it off just to get it off your, off your facility, you know, out of the, out of the way. And that goes for trash, recycling, organics, all this, all the things that has to be moving as this continual process. So the good news is that um, there hasn't been an incident of recycling facilities saying, look, the prices have just got so low. It would make more sense for us to, to landfill this. Um, but certainly it might be getting close. And um, nationwide, I've definitely heard of a lot more cities that have just said, you know what, no curbside recycling program anymore. Right. Just throw it all in the black, black bin. And, and that's, that's the true challenge. These are communities that, you know, uh, weren't necessarily in a, a place where they had a lot of progressive policies around promoting recycling and, and environmental um, benefit. Uh, so for them to even get that same fledgling recycling program back is going to be a challenge, um, let alone to inspire consumer trust in the fact that something positive is actually going to happen with it. That's yeah. the thing about recycling is if people aren't buying recycled content products, then manufacturers aren't you know, motivated to use recycled content in their products, if the, especially if there's a price differential. And so then, you know, the system doesn't work when there is demand, then, you know, that works great. So, uh, you know, Nike is just coming out with this, uh, space hippie line of shoes. that's made from recycled, uh, content. It's like 50%, uh, trash in those. So that's the kind of thing that will continue to drive demand for these recycled materials. But it's not healthy to have a, a market where people are, you know, paid to take material because then you end up with things like, I remember in Sacramento a few years back, there was the uh, mattress graveyard where someone was just mm -hmm. stockpiling mattresses that people would pay him to take. But he had real no, no real recycling plan or program. So he just basically built this giant fort out of mattresses mm -hmm. that um, eventually went out of business and it became the, the city's responsibility for cleaning it up. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in California, we have some uh, incentives that the statewide level CalRecycle has programs to promote the building of manufacturing, remanufacturing sites to utilize um, PET, that's number one plastics, and HDPE, number two plastics, as a feedstock for making new products, right? And so it's domestic. It's it's not enough for that, for a business to, you know, fully function on it, but it's not intended to be. It's enough to be seed money to get that, that uh, manufacturing facility off the ground. And so there is a little bit of uh, incentive there. Um, I don't know of any efforts on three through seven plastics at this point to kind of generate markets for those. There's also just a smaller percentage of the overall um, discard stream, so it's, it's harder to get critical mass in order to make it worthwhile for a business venture. But I, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that this time period uh, and the, the um, incredible decline of international prices of recycled commodities will result in a lot more interest uh, in domestic manufacturing. You know, um, I've heard of some paper mills going back online in the Pacific Northwest. That's no one yeah. thought that was going to happen before. You know, so but it, hopefully necessity is the mother of invention. Again, these materials have to go. So if they can get to that marketplace where the feedstock is is reasonable enough, and it's and it's on some some levels supported by us, right? I mean, we need to stop being in a place to say that when this stuff was garbage, we should pay for it. When we called it recycling, now it should pay for itself. You know, we need to have some money in the system that prov- that provides the opportunity for these businesses that operate on mar- razor-thin margins to actually turn a profit. And the only way I think we can do that is through policies of extended producer responsibility, right? Yes. That the people who make the packages in the first place have some skin in the game to make sure that they are recycled at end of tube. Without that, I don't see how it works. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think that there are some um, supports for people that use um, post-consumer waste plastics in their manufacturing in uh, California. I don't know if it's just for setting up the facility, but I think like there is a per ton subsidy and that's what drives a lot of the one and two plastic from um, never leaving the state. You know, that stuff is separated at the MRFs and recycled mostly in LA into new products. Well, those other three through sevens are still being exported because there's no um, domestic market. I have been kind of heartened by the idea of these um, secondary MRFs that kind of resort the overs from, you know, the primary MRFs. And what they're able to do is use optical sorting machines, robots, and, and things like that to further separate out the stream into pure loads, whether it be PLA or number five or some of these other types of plastics that uh, we don't see a lot of markets for, but it's it's kind of the cart and horse thing, you know. No one really wants to start using recycled number five polypropylene in their products when there's no um, no one's sorting them into bales of that material. You know, it's all mixed and sent overseas. So where are they going to source their their number five? Unless it's you know, there there's some companies that set up um, collection stations like. Uh, preserve uh you can go to like whole foods and drop off your number five plastics and then that goes back into new products but you know that's one of the few examples i've seen 
Yeah, and I think it's on some level we're asking the wrong question, which is, uh, you know, when will we have critical mass to get a product manufacturer interested in, in a number five plastic? The question has to be, why was a number five plastic allowed to be used in the first place? Number five plastic is a little bit difficult because a lot of our yogurt containers are number fives, but in general, three through sevens, you know, I think we should be asking the question, why were they allowed to make a packaging for a product that is inherently not very recyclable. So oh, you're talking about the precautionary principle. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah I, I, I actually brought that up once in a um, environmental law class in college and the professor and the guest professor uh, laughed at me. Oh, well, actually, if it makes you feel any better, we learned about the precautionary principle in my graduate degree program. Like it was a fundamental part of my uh, green MBA. So um, it's not something that we adhere to much in uh, the United States. It is actually part of San Francisco's governance and a guiding principle for, for the San Francisco Department of Environment. But that's the only example of that that I'm aware of. But yeah, absolutely. So, and this is not unheard of. Europe is doing a lot of this. They're limiting the number yeah. and types of plastic that you can put packaging in and saying that you are not allowed to put uh, your product in a package that is not very recyclable, right? And that, the way you phrase that is, is also very difficult because anybody could argue, well, am my trucks recyclable? Yeah, anything's recyclable if you get enough of it, but readily recyclable. It needs to be readily recyclable. Um, and if it's not, then it's banned. And, you know, I think up to Oregon and uh, their whole depot program, you know, they're actually to the place now where they're refilling their beer bottles. There are 12 participating breweries that are bottling the same brown beer bottle and putting their labels on it. They found that through the drop-off program that they have, they were getting bottles back in such good shape that they could send them back, get them washed out, sterilized, and refilled again. This is something that happens all over Europe. This is not rocket science. It's something that happened all throughout the United States less than 50 years ago. You know, So um, how do we get back to a program like that. Well, if we look at Oregon as a model, um, there's some takeaways there. It is back to that, like you use it, you bring it back. You know, they have uh, in-store drop-off uh, programs or just outside of the store drop-off programs um, for in most of the grocery stores. The recycling rate of those uh, beverage containers in the um, brewery program that I just mentioned is 96%. They get 96% of those, those bottles back. There's a 10 cent deposit on every single uh, container. They have much more um, expansive bottle bill than we do. We have weird things like, um, you know, wine bottles are not part of it. Uh, aluminum cans are part of it, uh, the CRV program. But if the aluminum can had wine in it, then it's not. You know, spirit bottles aren't, oh, yeah. but, you know, beer bottles are. So it's just, it's weird uh, for folks to even know and try to get their CRV back. They're going to bring in a bunch of stuff that probably would only net them scrap, scrap value. Whereas Oregon's is much more expansive and it's high enough at 10 cents that people really pay attention. Um, so there's models out there of how it could be done differently. Uh, there's models again out there uh, how you could restrict the types of packaging and we just need to get on board with that. I'm going to say at a federal level, you know, we can't probably institute yes. uh, packaging reform at the California statewide level because the products that we purchase are not relegated to our state. 
by and large, you know, I can't think of very many that would, that would only seek a California based market. Right. So it's gotta be something on the federal level when we have literally no recycling policy happening at all at the federal level. We don't even have federally mandated recycling programs for commercial businesses. There's no such thing. Uh, I can't even get into the federal government right now. <laughs> but I do want to talk about uh, the precautionary principle more and mention um, someone that really sparked this whole uh, passion of mine is William McDonough. Mm-hmm. And he had a movie, I think it was in the late 90s, but you would think it would be dated by now, but it's still like so revolutionary and we still haven't made the shift that he was um, recommending and predicting. And, you know, some places have made huge strides there, you know, like Patagonia and, and some other companies that are getting rid of toxics and their, their inputs. But basically he teamed up with a chemist and went to a, a carpet factory in Europe um, that had a problem with their waste scrap uh, cuttings from their carpets being considered toxic waste because of the types of plastics and stuff that were in them. So you could sell it as carpet, but you couldn't dispose of it as waste because it was hazardous, but yet, you know, it's allowed into people's homes where they're, you know, uh, breaking them down and ingesting them and things like that. So he took the approach of looking at all of the various inputs that the factory was using and then just cutting out any that were potential carcinogens or toxic or not recyclable. And then um, everything they used was now compostable, recyclable, non-toxic, and their waste problem went away. You know, you were able to, they were able to use it to mulch around their trees and things like that. It was, it was a big success, but you know, he's gone on and, and created like the world's largest green roof on the Fort Dearborn plant and, you know, lots and lots of other projects, including a uh, certification program uh, called um, Cradle to Cradle, where mm-hmm. products designed under that certification program are designed not only for recycling, but um, completely recycled and integrated in new, uh, similar products. I even have a friend who was able to design the world's first, um, cradle to cradle certified jacket. Oh boy. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. We speak of the, that book. Um, well, the book itself was part of my graduate degree program as well. And so, and we also learned about, uh, the process of the corporate company and, um, the, the fact that they had, I think it was, you know, over hundreds of dyes that they utilized and they cut down to something around like 19 different natural based dyes that were then, um, you know, compostable at the end. Um, you know, speaking of carpet here lies the issue. I think it's really amazing when folks like, um, William McDonough, when Patagonia does something amazing, when Nike does something great with uh, one pair of their shoes, is that there are companies that have that kind of uh, dispensable money to invest in a really great product as a one-off, almost as a marketing ploy. But on a grand scale, I don't know how much they're doing. And, and Patagonia is one difference. They definitely do it throughout their company operations. Um, but they're only, they're only one outdoor wear um, you know, clothing maker. We need it to be everybody and we need it to be everybody kind of like yesterday. Um, you know, in, in carpet in particular, uh, we have not seen that really spread outside of uh, those early movements and where we are in the state of California now is that we have care, which is a, a another mm-hmm. example of an EPR program that was trying to promote the recycling of carpet. 
And the numbers are pitiful. You know, the number percentage of carpet that actually winds up getting uh, recycled is less, well, less than 20%. Last I heard, I thought it was like 13 or something like that. And that's after years of care, care being there to promote the recycling of carpet. And part of the problem is uh, that we're increasingly seeing more and more carpet being made out of recycled PET. The irony of ironies, right? So the fact that they're making it out of synthetics instead of some of the other uh, the other uh, feedstocks, wool and things like this, means there's not much they can do with that uh, carpet. So it's an unintended consequence. It's funny, one time somebody asked me about making a part, uh, carpet purchasing choice, and I had to have that difficult right. conversation with them, that the fact that it was made from RP wasn't better. And how would you know? This is a person trying to make a good environmental choice, and it's as an unintended consequence of making that carpet not recyclable. So you're absolutely right that those that kind of systems thinking that uh, cradle to cradle instead of cradle to grave needs to be our approach. Um, I'm just not clear on how we get from here to there. You know how we can span that gap and have it be more widespread of um, of a solution for us. Well, yeah, leadership on a federal level would would be nice, but um, yeah, yeah, I. I can we'll understand. See what your... He's on his way. Yeah. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, speaking about carpet, though, um, the care program was dependent on California passing a budget. And so I, I was actually writing a grant for a client of ours to participate in the care program to a larger extent. They already were. The grant process uh, was extended due to the shutdown. Eventually, we got the award, but during that time, this uh, smaller hauler was bought by a larger waste hauler, mm-hmm. and they refused to even accept the money for the grant because they just didn't want to deal with the carpet. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is a revenue generator. You know, you got a grant for like this whole building to store it, but, um, and you're like charging customers to drop it off. You have customers used to doing that. It's like the only game in town that's accepting it. Like, why would you refuse all of that if, if you know, you're getting paid to take it and, and then care is taking it away from you for free? You know, there's workman's comp issues, I guess. It's carpet mm-hmm. can get really kind of hard to deal with, but mm-hmm. it, it could be done and there are programs to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's heavy. It could have, you know, bugs in it, things like that. And you know, it's, there's fears around that that are valid. I, you know, it's interesting when we think about these larger haulers, I see the, um, you know, waste management and public services of the world, um, you know, during this pandemic, their response has been close it down, no extra programs, you know, we're going to, you know, just, we're going to discontinue bulk item collection for residential for a while. We're going to close out all of our buybacks and drop-offs. We're not going to allow people to bring in their own cell phone materials. Um, Whereas the smaller haulers, you know, had a different approach. Uh, by and large, they didn't dis- they did not discontinue any of their programs. They kept up and running. Some of them even kept up their their outreach programs. You know, just pivoting it more towards doing things virtually or in a low impact way. You know, uh, delivering materials to to one person, like a property manager standing outside six foot distance, mass gloves. You know, uh, they they took a different approach, and it also just speaks to. Um, the kind of community role that a small hauler can play uh, because they know the community that they're in. They're held accountable. Whereas, you know, if, if this is a big hauler that's international, um, they could take or leave that contract, you know, and they could easily just um, not make the city very happy 
because they, they could also not be interested in working in that community by their own kind of bigger math on how to keep things afloat. So different approach, um, just a plug for the small haulers out there that kind of kept us all going uh, during this thing. It was just it was very interesting, the difference. I know there's still buy, some buyback centers that have not reopened, um, and those are, you know, waste management buyback centers, and they they, right. they, they just don't want to do it. And I, th- I don't think it's because of a safety reason, quite frankly. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, the, a lot of these large haulers are uh, trash companies first and, and recyclers later just to, yeah. you know, get the yeah. contracts and do what the community wants them to do. But it, it's never really been the focus and where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to switch gears a little bit, um, let's talk about the changes that COVID's presented for doing outreach. I, I think you mentioned that, um, you know, thanks to the social distancing and, and everything being closed, it's changed how you approach that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when this first hit, I thought there's no way I'm going to do any work because the first word in outreach is out and we are all sheltering in place. Like how will all my contracts will be canceled? That was my first thought. And it was a pretty depressing first couple of weeks, maybe even a month. Uh, But it's been very interesting to witness the innovation that it spawned. We've moved to doing virtual walkthroughs instead of needing to go on site. You know, I did one yesterday where, uh, the site contact like walked with a Zoom phone. He couldn't figure out how to turn it off of looking at him to the other. Oh. <laughs> or, like yeah. being the picture, he's showing me the trash cans. Um, but he walked me to the site, and he thought that anybody would do that. You know, we all care about this stuff so much we live and breathe it. But somebody else, where it's just one aspect of their job, I never thought to ask uh, for for them to take the time to do that if I wasn't there to walk with them. Um, and so we're doing some of that. Uh, we're doing some virtual trainings uh, where we get the stakeholders together. Once we've implemented whatever changes we think are necessary, maybe rolled out the new program. Um, and the good news about that is that it's easier to get um, more stakeholders in the virtual room, if you will. Um, because one, you know, if they're working from home, it's easy for them just to kind of be there. Um, it's less, less pressure, pressure on their busy schedule. Um, but, but two, uh, you know, for instance, I have five health clinics that I'm working with in, um, Alameda County, all throughout the County. They're all affiliated and we're rolling out organics at all of them at the same time. Well, it's roughly the same time. So I can do one training for all five sites at, you know, within the same one hour. Uh, so it kind of, kind of, it has increased our, um, our efficiency in a lot of ways that I would not have guessed. Uh, so that's been really cool. Um, and, and then just seeing how, you know, our grant holders, you know, city and county governments have really been working with, um, with us on the technical assistance teams to think outside of the box. You know, a lot of times, as I mentioned before, uh, my work is generated from uh, response to a mandatory ordinance. So I'm the kind of bearer of bad news that you're in trouble and you need to fix something. And that's your incentive to work with me. Quite frankly, it makes my job a lot easier because that I get a, I get a return phone call, you know, if somebody is facing a fine or something like that. Proactive outreach is a lot harder 
Um, it just means you need to have you know bigger target list in general because you're going to get less responses. But it's also been kind of a neat time to do it in because you know in a lot of ways there's been less chatter. You know, there's right. just less going on. Uh, people have more time on their hands to kind of think about these things. And I also feel like the community aspect of of us all deciding that we were going to shelter in place, that we were going to um, not expose others, you know, even those who might feel, well, I'm healthy. I don't need to worry about, you know, getting this, this, you know, super flu, which it's not, it's a very serious illness, but you know, some people might think I don't, I'm not worried about this myself. I'll still do this for that other person that I might get sick, you know, the elderly person or somebody else who is immune compromised. So because we're in this era of looking out for a fellow man, it's been interesting to see how that's translated into environmental ethics. You know, people thinking, well, we do need to do uh, something more to kind of address uh, global climate change and and some of the issues associated with trashing our planet, right? I mean, if you're at home all the time and you're looking out there and seeing your overflowing trash bins, uh, now all of a sudden you've got a different audience than you used to have. It's not just the people who um, are really highly motivated by these things who, who uh, listen in on recycling training. Now you got somebody else who's now just getting turned on to this issue, you know, by this kind of right. time period that we're in. So it's been very interesting. It's, it's, um, it's still tough. You know, I look forward to the times when I can go back out and uh, do an actual site walk, because quite frankly, it's harder to do on the phone. Um, and I think we will get there. I think some of this, um, you know, the phase in approach to allowing us to go back to work, it's, we're all going to have to figure this out because the outreach work that, that we do isn't really defined in any easy category. It's not like a, a restaurant or a nail salon, you know, it's, it's consulting, but it, it, it's quite different than you can't just paint all consultants with the same brush. Well, um, I'd like to so tell people, be, you know, be sure to temper your expectations. You know, mm -hmm. um, I have noticed that there's been a lot of slippage from, from our, um, commercial clients, including restaurants during this time, they've seemed to regress in their recycling uh, practices. Maybe it's because there's been a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, to, I would expect that to be the case, but yeah, we're pretty much, uh, having to go back through and train everybody again because people got lazy or thought they didn't want to uh, deal with it or, or maybe there's turnover. I'm not really uh, sure exactly the source of the issue, but we, we yeah, yeah, kind of like starting over. Yeah. The mandatory ordinances in both San Francisco and Alameda County stipulate you have to do recycling trainings annually and with all new employee onboarding. Right. So there's, there is no set it and forget it system. Um, quite frankly, that's good news for me, but also right. <laughs> for any business, uh, you need to set up a system for making sure that people are on board with this because there'll be employee turnover. Somebody doesn't quite get it. Somebody's not fully participating. And then by them not participating and, and uh, contaminating the systems, then everybody else gets the idea that it doesn't matter anymore. So there are all a myriad of ways uh, that things can fall apart that have nothing to do with uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, I think probably initially when we thought this thing was going to be a few weeks, um, you know, a lot of folks were like, how could we talk about recycling when, when we're talking about, you know, people dying all over the place. And I know we're getting to this, that this is the new normal into the foreseeable future that we can kind of turn our eyes back to, okay, what do we do now? 
What do we do now in this new environment? What changed? That means we have to, you know, adjust our operations in certain ways. Uh, what hasn't changed? And what can we improve now that we couldn't before, right? So it, looking at it is also just a new opportunity. Um, and then there'll be different business to business. You know, each, each and every one of them has a different way in which this is affected them. You know, grocery stores are a great example of, of you know, a group that uh, has been affected in wildly unpredictable ways due to the pandemic. You know, uh, they used to be able to backhaul their organics uh, to have them be composted. That wasn't happening for a while. So what do they do with that? Are they going to landfill that? Or, um, you know, all the restrictions uh, for, for their worker safety, how do they adjust to those things? So we had some conversations with grocery stores at this point are non-starters because they're just, they're front line. But right. I think longer term and not that longer term, like a month or two down the road, it was time to strike that conversation back up because can't continue to not deal with the organics problem forever because that's pressing. That's a pressing issue and it's going to cost them a lot more the longer they put off dealing with it. So, so there's opportunities in unanticipated places um, and there's just no easy way to know exactly how this whole thing is going to pan out. I think we can just uh, hope for the best, continue to do the work that we're doing, uh, continue to spread the gospel and be out there and, and be helping people. That's all you can do. Right. And I'd like to say the, the problem is the solution. And mm -hmm. I know that anyone that decided to uh, pursue hiring your company to help them find the solution to their problems would be, you know, well-served and, and uh, probably happy with the results. So keep up the good work. Thank you, Michael. And yeah. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us on the Trash Talk podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.